So a, a frequent question I get as a pastor, and this is, you know, going when someone is going through a tough time, a difficult time, people ask me, so like, what's going on with my life right now? Is, is God punishing me? And they, they ask this because they're going through a, such a tough time. You know, someone gets, you, you get these double whammies that are just brutal. People get cancer and they lose their jobs or uh, they, they lose a loved one and they get cancer. And, you know, people, when these really horrible things happen, like, you know, say like, you know, you've gotten divorced and uh, you lose your job or whatever hardship befalls you, people have this very natural tendency to think, gosh, does God like totally hate me? Is he punishing me right now? Like, what's going on? And kind of as, as Chris Farley describes a person's life going downhill better than anybody, you know, I've been divorced thrice and I live in a van down by the river, right? That's kind of like, you know, a downhill life. And so people have this thought, oh gosh, man, like my life's a, a train wreck. You know, uh, I'm here in my 40s and everybody hates me and I hate my job and I don't get along with anybody. Like, what's going on? Does God, is God angry at me? Is there some, is there some secret sin that I maybe I've, I've committed? that's allowed me to live this kind of life where I am right now. And so we need to ask, is this idea of thinking that God is punishing you, is that a biblical idea? Is that a biblical feeling or attitude for those who trust upon Christ as their Lord and Savior? Is that really right? Does God punish Christians? Or to put differently, can, if you're a Christian, can you ever be condemned by God? And so this morning, we're going to see Romans 8.1. We get a definitive answer to this, a very clear answer. But I want to, I want to go into Romans 7 first because the verse does not have as much meaning unless you read the context. The context is key here. And the context, as I'm going to read here, we went over this last Sunday, the context is Romans 7, 18 through 25, which talks about a Christian struggling with sin. This is not someone who lives a perfect life, who never sins. This is Paul's kind of autobiography, his struggle with sin. This is what it says in Romans 7, 18 through 25. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil that I do not want, I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That sounds like my life, right? That sounds like the struggle with sin we all face. So I find it to be a rule or a law that when I want to do the right thing, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. This is Paul talking. Paul loves the law of God, but he's struggling here big time. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He's really struggling with sin, with just the shame of sin here. This is our lives. This is how we feel day to day. But he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is a Christian. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. So this is Paul describing this, this epic struggle with sin. Like I said last week, this is in Greek in the present tense, first person, you know, singular. This is Paul describing, he's an apostle. He's describing his current struggle with sin. And so he calls himself wretched man when he wants to do the right thing, but evil lies close in hand, you know? Every time we, you know, want to do the right thing, our mind says, let's just do something really dumb. You know, that's how we are. And so I actually was looking at a sermon this week, and a pastor was saying, yeah, like, 
Romans 7, most depressing chapter in the Bible. I was like, what? No way, man. This is the most amazing chapter in the Bible because this describes my life, my struggle with sin. And when we're struggling with sin, we think, oh man, this is like, I'm not a Christian because I'm struggling with sin. But see, Paul affirms that, yeah, you can struggle with sin and be a Christian. Actually, all Christians struggle with sin, right? So, yeah, and then what does he do immediately afterwards, which makes Romans 7 so sweet, comforting, and amazing? What he does immediately after this struggle with sin, he goes into Romans 8.1. This is what Romans 8.1 says. After the struggle with sin, immediately, this is immediately after Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In Christ is just to mean you believe in Christ, you belong to Jesus. So one of the things that people don't know, and it's very interesting, so like the first Bible manuscripts that were written, we know, were not written with verses and chapter divisions. It was written in Koine Greek, which we can translate today. But the chapter divisions were actually added in the 13th century by a pastor to kind of provide organization to parts of the Bible. And so, so people knew where to like, you can cite, hey, I like Romans A1, that's my life verse, right? You can do that now, kind of thing. And so they were added later. And so why this matters, why I'm bringing this up, is because there would have been no chapter division here. Paul would be just describing his, his struggle with sin and then immediately going into saying, no condemnation. So he struggles with sin and he isn't condemned. So that's profoundly comforting to you and I who struggle with sin every day to know that just because we struggle with sin doesn't mean God doesn't love you, doesn't mean he's punishing you, doesn't mean that you are condemned. Now the Greek word uh, for condemned is katakrima, which means like an execution, a sentence of doom, punishment, uh, just kind of just completely condemned. That's, that's the idea, which is why it's translated as condemnation. And it's, it's very similar when Paul says no condemnation. It's a legal word. So it's kind of like in a court of law where someone says not guilty. And so what he is saying here is that there is now no condemnation, no punishment for those who are in Christ. Now, when you hear the word now, you think, oh, now I'm not condemned. But what about in the future? Maybe that verdict could be overturned somehow. Maybe it could be, you know, swayed to where, okay, I'm not condemned now, but I do something really stupid or I sin or I say something really offensive to somebody or I, you know, you know, think of something bad about God in my mind when I'm driving or whatever, right? You know, you think, oh, then all of a sudden I'm back in that verdict and I'm condemned. I go from no condemned to condemned. But Paul is not teaching that, okay, you're currently under no condemnation, uh, and, but, you know, that could change. Rather, he in Greek is using the emphatic negation. That means that Paul is saying that if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, condemnation doesn't even exist for you. It's not even a category that can connect to you because of what Christ has done. This is how Pastor Tim Keller puts it, I think very clearly. It's not that we have moved out from under it while that it could, it, that it could return. No, there is no condemnation for us at all. It doesn't exist anymore. And the reason why it doesn't exist anymore is because 2,000 years ago, Jesus took the punishment for all of our sins on the cross, took all of our condemnation on the cross so that we could never be condemned. And so no charge from the enemy, from your conscience against you can ever stick. It, it, that, that charge couldn't even possibly stick against you. This is how uh, Paul puts it in Romans uh, 8, verses 33 through 34, kind of explaining why we can't be condemned. 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, the, the, God, the ones that God loves and has chosen? It is God who justifies, God who declares righteous. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised and is at the right hand of God interceding for us? So God, God can't condemn you. Because he already condemned his son on the cross. He already died for you. He cannot condemn you. It doesn't exist for those who believe in Christ. The penalty of sin is no longer there. But Paul goes on to say something more profound, or not more profound, but even also profound, I would, I would say, in Romans 8, 2 through 4. He says, he says that this verdict of not guilty, this verdict of no condemnation, produces a transformed life, and that even more, that that Jesus also had to earn it throughout his life. It's not just his death that saves us, but it's also his life that saves us. It's also his life that transforms. So everything Jesus did in his, his whole life saves us, and that brings incredible transformation to our lives. And this, this is what he says in Romans uh, 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So the, the fact that there is no condemnation doesn't make you want to, like, sin. It helps you flee from sin. That's a big difference. Because Romans has taught so far that the law and condemnation and a, a, a guilty sentence, God being mad at you, all those things, that actually doesn't make people good. That makes people bad. And that verdict of righteous and no, not condemned, that actually... Uh, um, that actually makes people uh, good. I, I said I don't know if I said it right, but yeah. But basically, the law makes you bad. The grace and no condemnation makes you good. And it's very interesting if you look at someone like the life of um, Martin Luther, who, and he's a perfect example of this. Before he understood grace, before he understood mercy, he actually struggled with a deep hatred of God. You know, we think of Martin Luther as the Protestant reformer, or not the racial reformer, but the Protestant reformer. Um, and, and, he, and so he, he was really struggling. This is what he says before he became a Christian. He says, love God, sometimes I hate him. He, I, mean, he's, he, I mean, that sounds pretty, pretty rough and blasphemous there, right? He says, love God, sometimes I hate him. And so he never felt like he was good enough. He never felt like he measured up. He never thought that he was really good. And so what he would do is, it was really funny, he would go confess his sins at a priest over and over again, like all day, because he always felt like he was sinning. And finally the priest was like, just get out of here. You know, like, I'm tired of hearing your sins. They're not even that bad. But see, Martin Luther realized God is perfect and I am not. So I'm in big, big trouble. He is holy and perfect, and I am not. And so he felt like he constantly had to confess his sins to the extent that uh, the priest is like, get out of here, you know? But what's really interesting is that when he understands grace, when he moves from thinking this perspective that God's always condemning him, God's always putting you know, wrath and judgment, and God hates him, he hated God. But when he changes from going from that to realizing God loves him by faith and grace alone, he totally changes. I want to read this. This is an amazing account that he gives. Though I lived as a monk without reproach, like he lived in an outwardly righteous life, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extreme disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was uh, placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated. He says, I hated. I hated the righteousness of God, which punishes sinners and secretly, if not blasphemous, 
Ultimately, I was angry with God. Thus, I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. He was very angry. And at last, the mercy of God meditating to me day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, which is in Romans, right? We've been looking through this. Romans. In the righteousness of God is revealed, as is written, the righteous by faith. And the meaning that the righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which a merciful God justifies us by faith. Here I felt like I was altogether born again. And I'd enter into paradise itself through open gates. I extolled the sweetest word with a love as great as hatred with which I had hated the word before, the righteousness of God. See, he thought the righteousness of God was God being angry and mad and condemning him. But when he understood that it was God giving him righteousness by grace through faith, it changed everything. And so what did he do? He transformed the world. He, he preached the Bible. He, he, he risked his life for the gospel. He loved God with a passion, with a burning passion that few people have ever seen. And he was a very uh, on-fire Christian. Uh, he was a big follower of Christ. Because he realized God loved him, and that changed everything. And so the verdict of not guilty, the verdict of not condemned, changes everything. And in verse uh, Romans 8, 3, he describes more how this not condemnation sentence is possible. So it says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So that phrase, in the likeness of sinful flesh, some people have thought like that, saying, oh, I guess Jesus is like sinful. That's not what it's saying. And according to the Bible, Hebrews 4.15, it teaches that Jesus never committed any sin at all. He was perfectly sinless. He never had any transgression. It says this in Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus had no sin. And so what it's talking about in the likeness of sin, sinful flesh is talking about Jesus here. He suffered just like we did. He was tempted tempted just like we did. He dealt with all of the things of the fallen realm that Adam brought about, all the fallenness that Adam brought. He dealt with all of that. Sin, the, the sin that people would, would commit against him, temptation, all those things, the poor treatment he got from people. He dealt with all of the things of a fallen world. And so he was like, he looked and appeared like, uh, like any person under the sun, any person dealing with all the trials and tribulations of life. That's why it says he was like simple flesh. He wasn't like this perfect little angel, you know, that, that well, he was perfect in, in morally, but he wasn't like, you know, you, you could hurt Jesus. You could, they whipped Jesus. He experienced all the consequences of sin, even though he was sinless. And that's why it says here, but it says that he condemned, God condemned sin in the flesh in Jesus. Jesus took on our condemnation. Jesus took on our penalty. And because of that, we have salvation. Romans 8, 4 says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so people have also misunderstood that this righteousness requirement um, that's saying that we now as Christians fulfill the law. They've uh, understood it that way. But Paul is just said in Romans 7. He, often when he wants to do the right thing, evil lies close at hand. And he wants to do the right thing. He delights in the law of God, but he's just he's struggling with sin. So uh, who here can, can say, hey, yeah, Nate, you know what? I fulfill the law. 
It's like, yeah, no, no, you haven't. The moment you woke up and probably thought in your bed for 10 minutes, maybe you get it faster than me. I like to stay in my bed for 10 minutes and, you know, sometimes slots in and out. You know, the moment we wake up, the first 10 minutes, we have not fulfilled the law. We have not loved the Lord God with all of our heart, with all of our strength, and with all of our mind. We've never, we can't do that for 10 minutes. So no one can claim like, yeah, Nate, I'm kind of a big deal. I fulfilled the law today. I'm so wonderful. I'm a law fulfiller. No, that's not what this is saying. And Paul, the whole context, kind of teaches against that with his struggle with sin. So when it says that the law might be fulfilled in us, what it is talking about is kind of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17. I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. He, Jesus, was our perfect substitute. He was perfect in our place. He kept all of the, the demands of the law, heart, body, mind, and soul, everything. He loved the Lord God with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength, whereas we do not. And so we don't have to strive and keep the law in order to go to heaven, in order to be saved, because Jesus kept all of the law for us. Oftentimes, I've noticed this, this is something I've, you know, when I talk to people about evangelistic conversations and I have discussions with them, you know, I'll say, well, do you know right now if you're going to heaven? And what people will say to me sometimes is, you know, I, I don't know. I hope so. It, it, what if I commit a, a really uh, bad sin before I die? People would often say like they'd use the rapture as like a tool to try to scare people. And they say, well, you know, if you're doing something really bad right when Jesus comes back, you're, you're in trouble. And so you don't know if, if you're holding that, you don't know whether or not you're going to go to heaven. People say, well, you know, I, I hope to go to heaven. You know, if I just keep on striving and keep on obeying the law to the end, it's like, yeah, you're not obeying that law for 10 minutes. That's not going to happen. But if I just keep on striving and going and going, then maybe, you know, yeah, I'll go to the end, I'll, I'll be saved. Now, the reason why people respond in this way is because they are not basing their salvation on Christ. They are ultimately basing their salvation on themselves their accomplishments, their good works. And if a person is basing it on them, they don't know if they're going to ever fulfill the law. I mean, I mean, never mind your past sins, you can't presently fulfill the law, especially right before you die. And so if you, if you have this view that you need to work and strive to fulfill the law, and that's what's going to get you saved, then ultimately, like Luther, you're going to live in a state of constant fear, anxiety, and even anger towards God, especially when things go south in your life. This is just what happens. But the reason why Paul can say, that there is now no condemnation. It doesn't even exist for you. The reason why he can say that, and that, that means that if you were to die right now, if you trust in Christ, you would go to heaven. The reason why he says that is because it's based on Jesus. It's not, oh, I hope to get there. It's no, it's a confident yes. If I die right now, if I were to die in my sleep tonight, I know I will be in heaven if I were to die right now. It's that confident pronouncement. The only way a person can have confidence in saying that is not basing their salvation on themselves, but basing it on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And this is why Romans 8 has been called one of the best verses in the Bible, one of the greatest verses that summarizes, like one of the climatical themes of the Bible is that there's no condemnation because of Jesus. It's not rooted in our performance, but Jesus' performance for us, what he has done. And so that means we as Christians, we'll never be punished for our sins in this life or the life to come. Now, that doesn't mean that you'll never feel like 
that God's punishing. You'll, you'll never feel like God's, God's not punishing. You will feel like that at times. If I'm being honest with you, I, f- I feel that way sometimes. You know, you feel like some things in your life are going in a rough direction, you know, and you're just like, why is this happening to me? I have this thought, you know, oh, is there some like sin I'm committing that I'm not aware of? I start thinking that, you know, is there something I'm doing wrong that I just, I'm not, you know, you know, I'm, of course we all sin every day and there's sins we're not aware of, but I'm like, is there something really bad I'm doing that's like, you know, causing things to go in this direction? Like what's, what's going on here? And so we, we struggle to believe the gospel, even though we believe it. It's like the man in the, in the gospel of, of Mark, the father in the gospel of Mark, he says, I believe, help my unbelief. And so we need to hear the gospel that we are not condemned over and over again so that we can know that we're saved. And just because we're going through something hard in our lives, it does not mean, even though you might feel it personally and experientially, it does not mean that God is punishing you. Um, people will think, okay, yeah, well, it, it's got to be a secret sin. You know, the, the reason why this is happening is all, all sin. You know, well, I, I'm getting in a divorce right now. Or I'm losing my job because I've committed some sin. And I'm saying, no, that's not the case. People say, oh, my teenage child's rebelling against me because I'm, I must have been the worst parent ever and God must hate me. I've seen some really great parents terrific parents that have had their teenage son or daughter rebel. It's not, it's not related to that. Or, you know, whatever someone goes through, God's not punishing you. It's, people say, well, you know, Nate, how can you say that? I mean, there are some really horrible things happening to me. I'm going bankrupt. My, my husband's le- leaving me. I mean, how could God not be judging me if those things are going on right now in my life? And the reason why that is is because even those hard painful, difficult events that we, you know, will we'll face in a different, not everybody has the same lot in life. We, we'll, we face different challenges and pains and struggles. We all have a different lot in that way, but we all share the common experience that we have pain, we have loss, we have struggles. Anybody who's lived for 20 years can tell you that. But all of those difficult events, all of those hard events, all of those painful events in your life, according to the Bible, God is working out right now for your good and for his glory. This is what Romans 8.28 says. A verse that's even in Hollywood like like shows and movies. I mean, it's like the most well-known Bible verse. But we forget it, don't we? I was watching this uh, series called Manifest and they were like popping Romans 8.28 like I couldn't believe them. Like, is this a Christian show? It wasn't, but this even resonates with people, this optimistic viewpoint. Romans 8.28, and we know that for God, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So yeah, even the very difficult and hard things right now are being worked out right now for your final ultimate good. You may not see it now. You may not see it immediately. You, it might be 10 or 20 years till you experience something difficult right now will work out ultimately for your good. It might be an eternity for all we know. But the point is, is God is using everything for your good right now in Jesus. There is nothing that God is doing right now, right now, that's to try to get you back, to try to punish you, to try to like, like he's putting something in your life right now. He goes, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give um, this person justice right now because they send back here. So I'm going to start giving this guy some justice and making his life difficult. That can never happen because that justice, that punishment was already poured out on Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago when he screamed it is finished. 
He's like, well, I don't know, Nate. I mean, there's some things. If I have an affair or if I get drunk and get into a bar fight, you know, I'm going to go to jail. Not for the affair part, but you know what I mean. Um, but, you know, if you do something, you, you, you fall into sin, you, someone does drugs and they sell drugs or whatever it is. Hopefully Christians don't do that. That's really an extreme example, don't you think? Well, all my examples are so extreme, bar fights and affairs. But, you know, I mean, there, there, we know that there are certain sins that you can do, like that there are consequences for. Like there are bad consequences for certain sins that we can do. And that's true. I'm not, I'm not denying like, oh, yeah, you just kind of sin and there's no consequences for sin. Like you could do really bad things and there, there are going to be results. Like if you go around, I don't know, yelling at people and calling them names, someone might punch you in the face eventually. Someone unhinged. You know, I mean, so, uh, yes, sins have consequences for them. But in Hebrew says this, it says that uh, that God loves us and he shows his love for us by being a father and he disciplines us for our sins. But here's the thing. Even those consequences for our sins, even those difficult things that happen as a result of our, you know, stupidity and having an affair, you know, that can really hurt your family, really hurt. It does really hurt your family. Could it does right? So you know those horrible things, even those difficult things, falling into a terrible sin, even the consequences for those sins, even the consequences are used for your final and ultimate good. So yeah, if you are a Christian and you say something stupid or foolish, there will be consequences. But God will use those consequences ultimately for your good and for His glory. So. Everything that is being done to you is never, ever, ever to satisfy justice, to mete out justice on you. Um, one of the college kids had a, a really insightful question uh, that, about this, this teaching in Romans 8.28. And I was really impressed by it. I'm like, that's an interesting question. I've, I've thought like that. But that's, he put it to me in a really clear way. He says, okay, Nate, if everything I do works out for my good as a believer, everything I do, then why not just use that as like an excuse to sin all I want, right? You could say, hey, if I sin, it's going to work out for my good anyways. And so, yeah, I could just sin all I want or, or mess up or whatever. I don't, have to, I don't have to be careful about anything because God's going to work even my mistakes out for his glory and my greater good. And kind of what I said to him is, is okay, it, 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 it is true, if I were to go outside right now, turn on that fire pit, and that thing lights up really quick. I don't know if you guys, all of you have experienced it, but our church, um, not barbecue, fire pit, wrong one. Our fire pit, if you turn that on, I mean, and you put it on high, the flame just pops up like the, like the bowels of hell. I mean, you know, they just, boom, you know? I actually singed somebody's eyebrows. Good thing he wasn't hurt at all. That's like a lawsuit right there. And of course, the child would be hurt. That's also very bad. But you know what I mean, right? So, that that fire pit, that thing is, you know, you can really feel the heat on that sucker. Okay, if I were to take my hand and put it in that fire, that would be really painful. I'm going to be like, well, it's going to work out for good anyways. You know, just put it in. No, no, we don't, we don't, we want to avoid pain. We don't want pain in our lives. And so, you know, uh, we, like sin brings pain. It, it betrays Christ and it pains our heart to seek Sin, rather than goodness, beauty, and truth that's in Jesus Christ, it wrecks our spirit to give in to idols rather than serving Christ when we stumble as Christians. 
And I just love the way that Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it in his commentary in Romans, kind of the difference. He gives a really cool marriage and a legal analogy here about how we don't want to sin because of this. We don't want to dishonor and betray Christ. He says, the difference between an unbeliever sinning and a Christian sinning is the difference between a man transgressing the laws of a state and a husband who has done something he should not have in his, in his relationship with his wife. Anybody who's married knows that experience. He is not breaking the law, but he is wounding the heart of his wife. It's not like you're going to be like taken to jail. That is a difference. It is no longer a legal matter, a matter of justice or punishment or anything like that, but it's a matter of personal relationship and love. The man does not cease to be the husband legally in the instance. I mean, in most cases, I mean, you know, I mean, if, if, if people, if, if, if wives divorce their husbands for all their mistakes, no one would, would, would be married, right? Not for very long. Not for very long. Yeah, it's like the honeymoon and it's done. Even on the honeymoon, all right? Let's be honest. So... Yeah, the law does not come in this matter at all in the sense that now something much worse than a legal condemnation. I would rather offend against the law of the land objectively, like, you know, break the speed limit or whatever it is, of course, but you having sinned against love, sinning against your wife, so you may, and you should feel ashamed, but you should not feel condemned because to do so is to put yourself back under law, to put you under that legal system of like, you know, self-righteous and works-based religion. That's what that is. And so that, I mean, so yeah, sinning horribly against Christ hurts us. We don't like the, tr the, the pain of betraying the one who loved us so much that he gave everything for us. He, he lived his life for us. He suffered and died for us. And he loves us even though we're train wrecks and at times we're so miserable and unlovable, he still loves us and he wraps his arms around us and he never stops. And so Christians, we don't want to betray somebody who is so beautiful, so true, and who's given so much for us. We don't want to let Christ down even though we do every day. And it reminds me of this scene from, from Braveheart. If you want to know, Braveheart is actually one of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> Who's seen Braveheart? I'm curious. Look at those hands. So many people. Yes, I love it. I have seen it over a hundred times. I'm not even kidding. I, would, I, I, I used to be an insomniac in seminary, so I would fall asleep to Braveheart every single night. The English are too many. And I just, it's like, it's like a script in my mind now. And there's a scene uh, in, in uh, Braveheart with, you got uh, Robert the Bruce. So Robert the Bruce is the king of Scotland, and he's, and he's kind of taken the place of his dad, who was also the king, and his dad's dying. And so uh, um, Robert the Bruce is great friends with William Wallace. They're like, they respect each other. They got this camaraderie going here, and they, they both want to help serve and free Scotland from English tyranny, the whole point of Braveheart is freedom, right? Freedom from, 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 from the English, right? So that's the whole point of the, the story. And so he and Robert, the Bruce, are working together. They're friends, and they're working to help get freedom for Scotland. And so William Wallace, this amazing figure who does the right thing, fights for freedom, and he's, he's unbending in principles for freedom and his commitment to the truth of freedom. And here's Robert the Bruce. What he does, and I hope I'm not spoiling the film for you, is he sells out William Wallace and his country, and he betrays Wallace, 
in a war. He actually sides with England so that he can earn and get his, his throne and get more power politically by the advice of his father who's dying of leprosy. So his father's like, hey, you know, make a deal with England and, you know, you'll really secure your throne as a king of Scotland. And... You know, Robert the Bruce feels so just dirty for just betraying Wallace on the battlefield and leaving him and basically for dead. And he feels so awful inside. And this is his dialogue. I want to read it. This is the best like scene in cinema history. This should have gotten a million Academy Awards. I don't even care what anybody says. This is amazing. But this is a scene between Robert the Bruce Sr., his, his father who's dying, who was the previous King of Scotland, and Robert the Bruce, about the situation of him betraying William Wallace. He says... I am the one who's rotting. He's got leprosy. But I think your face looks graver than mine, son. We must have alliance with English, England to prevail here. You've achieved that. You've saved your family, increased your land and time. You will have all the power in Scotland. And this is what Robert the Bruce says to his father, you know, with all this political temptation. Lands, titles, men, power, nothing. He says, nothing? So I have nothing. Men fight for me because if I do not, I throw them off my land and I starve their wives and their children. Those men who bled on the ground at Falkirk fought for William Wallace. He fights for something that I never had and I took it from him when I betrayed him and I saw it in his face on the battlefield and it's tearing me apart. And his father says to try to comfort him, he says, you know, Robert the Bruce Sr., who's dying of leprosy, says, you know, well, all men betray, all lose heart. And he just kind of screams in a moment that should have won an Academy Award. I don't want to lose heart. I want to believe as he does. And he says at the end, I will never be on the wrong side again. And I love this line because that is how we as Christians feel when we betray Christ. Someone who has done everything for us, who is beautiful and true and stands for everything that's right and good and has died for us and has given everything for us. And so when, when, we, when we as Christians, even though all things work out for good, we don't want to desire to shame the name of Christ. We don't want to betray the name of Christ. It's not a matter of punishment. It's a matter of our betrayal that tears us apart on the inside. And this is why Paul... Paul says in Romans 7:24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? So there's an agony here. There's a deep agony with betraying Christ, and it tears us up. And Paul betrays him. The Apostle Paul, who was very valiant and brave and strong and courageous in spreading Christianity, even he is unfaithful to Jesus. Even he betrays Jesus. And you can see it here. It, it just tears him apart. Wretched man that I am. And so that's why Romans 8.1 is so important. That's why it's the most important, one of the most important verses in the Bible. It says no condemnation because when we betray Christ, when we let him down, we just, we, we sink into this just despair and ruin and we can just fall apart. And ironically, the only thing that brings us back from that is Christ's continued love for us. That even though we betray him, we let him down every day, he will never condemn us. He will never stop loving you. And, I, and when we realize that, that gospel truth, that he loves us so much, that he'll never condemn you, he'll never send you to hell, that he's, he's done everything for you, when that digs in deep into your soul and you realize that you do betray him, that he just keeps on loving you, that causes you to want to sin less and follow Jesus more because he is so beautiful and glorious and amazing. And so the grip of sin gets looser and looser and looser in our lives.
because of his grace and mercy. Let us pray.